1 Kings 19, verse 4. This is a message that really moved me and was on my heart, and I would like to share this. And this is about Elijah. You know him. And I would like to read some special verses here. Maybe you've uh, skipped them over now, or you didn't think they were so important. But he went down into the desert one day's journey, and he sat down under a broom bush and he wished to die and he said, Lord, it is enough. Take my soul now. I am no better than my father. And he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. So that's 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 4. So that is an interesting phenomenon, right? Even though we might be doing well, or we maybe have just been through a victory, we had powerful times, but somehow afterwards there can be something like a hole that we can tumble into, a hole, a ditch of frustration, discouragement. Maybe you've not experienced that before, but in your life you find everything's pointing to victory, you should be happy over the things that happen, the success, maybe in your business or in your family or wherever you are but something is within you like in the prophet Elijah, a whole discouragement, frustration, that's what's there. And so there was Elijah here, in my own words, he says, I've had enough, I'm no better than my father's. And somehow, this phrase stuck in my mind. I am no better than my ancestors. I am no better. You know, sometimes when I read the word of God, there's an echo in my mind. You know, what does he mean? Which ancestors, which fathers is he talking about? So there's frustration, discouragement. He sits under the broom tree. We know the story. So frustration says, that's what experts say. It's a feeling of helplessness of disappointment, something that you hope for did not happen. That's frustration. And discouragement is something deep inside. It's paralyzing you and it makes you passive, paralyzes you. And so you have the sense there, there's nothing moving anymore. You can't go on. I have to give up. A deep sense of discouragement. And so this is what happened for Elijah. And he lay down, that's what we can read, under the broom tree, it's actually full of thorns and bristles. And these thorns in the Bible always stand for uh, worries and, and fears. So it wasn't comfortable, but he lay down under this bush full of fears and worries. So that's the verse that we'll look at. And then we find Elijah once again in the New Testament, because Elijah is used over and over again. He doesn't only represent a the life of a prophet, but even in one of the most exciting passages of the Bible, the Mount of Transfiguration, we find it. You all know the story, because three of Jesus' disciples are together with him, and they were privileged to see Moses and Elijah, who appeared them to them on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they, he, Jesus was transfigured, he, his garments were raised 
brilliant like light. We can read that in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them by themselves on a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. So when they got back from the Mount of Transfiguration, they didn't get enough of that and they talked about the story with Jesus and they asked him and they said, Jesus, how is this? Why do the scribes say, you read that in verse 10, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So somehow this encounter with Elijah wasn't shocking to them, but it brought them to a question. And there is an old Jewish tradition. And that was the question now that the disciples asked Jesus, how is this with Elijah? And you know the song that Paul Wilbur sings, these are the days of Elijah. Now what about Elijah? And according to this old Jewish tradition, Elijah will come even before the Messiah in order to prepare the people for their king. So that's the purpose for the coming of Elijah. And they just saw uh, in front of the inner eye Malachi speaking about this. In Malachi 3, behold, I am sending the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons of the hearts of the sons to the fathers, so I won't have to come and strike the land. So that's what they saw and heard. And they asked Jesus, you know, what about Elijah? And this Jewish tradition, we are nearing Passover now, you find it in the celebration of Passover, Passover until today, because to this day, they are opening a door to invite Elijah, and they're reserving a seat for him, just in case he should choose to return that year. So that's Elijah. And therefore the disciples are asking Jesus, what do you think about this? What is this about Elijah? Matthew 17. And then Jesus says, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And so what he's saying is, yes, Elijah is coming, even in a double sense of the word. So the one thing is, Elijah is John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says. And he already made the way for Messiah, for me. But the second thing is, something will come when Messiah returns as king, Elijah will also come to restores all things. And he didn't necessarily talk about a person. But something will happen in the spirit of Elijah and it will prepare the coming of the king. And so here we see two things, the coming of Messiah prepared, the coming of Jesus prepared by John the Baptist, but we also see the coming of the King, Jesus who returns and that will be preceded by the ministry of Elijah 
Nature, who has a special hallmark, which is the restoration of all things. That's what he says. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It will be in the spirit of Elijah. And it will bring restoration in the church and also over Israel. So there is a very specific date, a specific event that will happen. And then Acts 3.21, the heavens had to receive him to that moment to, until the time when everything is restored. And so Jesus comes again, but before he comes, something has to be restored that God spoke about through the mouth of his holy prophets right from the beginning. And now this restoration has different kind of meanings. Many times I found this hard to get my head around because restoration wasn't very clear to me. And many times this also is something that you could hide behind because restoration is something really a word. Who is restored, what and when and how? So it was a term that was more foggy, right? But what does it mean, restoration? So something is made whole again. Something is working again. Something that had a defect is repaired, is made whole, healed, renewed. It is made whole again. It is worked through, basically. Worked on and worked through. So something can happen. And if you accidentally uh, deleted all of your data, the data needs to be restored. And you need a certain program to do that. Something that's lost is restored to you. Something that God has given, the fact that he chose his people is being restored. Something that was God's plan for his people is restored. Something that God has already placed into creation, into your and my life, worth and value is restored where it has been destroyed. God made you. God made Adam and Eve. And life of man was destroyed by the virus of sin, was destroyed. The, the hard drive of our spirit was destroyed and is restored through the new program of his spirit. And that program is the program of the cross, the software of the cross. Restoration. And restoration is something we don't only need and we say, okay, either I receive it or not. But without restoration, your heart hard drive is dead. So something needs to be refurbished, made new. Things don't remain the way they were. The battles and struggles is something you can leave behind. When the Lord restores you, makes you glorious and beautiful again. Behold, the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. That's the anointing of Elijah. And so we know what Elijah did. First Kings 8, he confronted Israel's limping in both legs and he named Israel's idolatry for what it was. But he had a special calling also. And today I won't speak about First Kings 18, fire coming down from heaven and the water flowing down from the altar. The Baal's prophets that were limping in both feet But the special calling of Elijah was something quite different. And that was a core of his ministry. And that calling was so important to God. He said, if you don't see that, I will 
bring a curse on this land. That's Malachi 4. Behold, I'm sending the prophet Elijah before the coming of this great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers so I won't have to come and destroy the land. Or, to put it in other words, I won't have to strike oh, the land with a curse or, or destroy it with a curse. So that's key, right? We all know the word of God where it's about blessing and curse, how we treat him. But this is something else because who are the fathers? Who are the sons? What has to be worked through? What has to be restored here? And why is this one of the marks of the spirit of Elijah before Jesus comes again? So this is an end time calling, something at a time to prepare something else. God is leading his church, his ministry into something. And somehow, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. My friends, we love the work of the Holy Spirit. We love the power of the Holy Spirit when he is moving. But here we see the work of the Holy Spirit, something that prepares the coming of Messiah, something is restored between the church and Israel and the fathers and the sons. And I'm wondering, what are these fathers and sons? And as we can find many times in the word of God, the word has many different levels of meanings. And first of all, it's very practically what we see on the forefront, very practically speaking, the children and the fathers, the sons and daughters and their fathers. So that's very simple. It's a restoration of a father relationship to the sons and daughters. That's something that's important to God. So that means he can't leave things as they are if there's walls between people's hearts, lack of reconciliation, closed hearts. And actually, it's the, the first of the Ten Commandments, right? It's two-sided. The first of the Ten Commandments, it has a promise. Yeah, It's not just the uh, honoring the fathers and mothers, but it's also the other way around. So it's vice versa. So a relationship between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, that's not just anything, but it's so important to God that he says he's got plans. And when I was 20 or 25, I have to tell you, I couldn't hear this anymore because I said, well, sure. We are to honor. No, this is, this is sure the, the father's generation have to work on this. But actually, it was my problem that I needed to recognize that I had to work on my own heart. And that actually takes us to the point of working through the past. That brings us to the point where we take things to the light because restoration and renewal can only happen when I'm transparent and allow God to enter my heart. And God says, if you don't allow this, this has something to do with your land. And the second thing is, in the relationship between fathers and sons, is a relationship between generations. That's one topic we talk about in the Veil of Silence seminars, because it's the generations that have been formed in different ways. 
the generation who was formed by the war, then the post-war generation, the grandchildren, and then the XYZ generations, and each generation has a different name and is marked by different things. It's really hard to tell them apart now. But somehow it's strange because God says there is a time of restoration. There is a working through of the past. There's a time when I will do a work that the generation shall minister to each other. They shall discover each other and lift each other up. And just now, Karen mentioned something about the way she was raised and educated and brought up, which was called black pedagogic. Um, and that's a topic for the next conference, right? It doesn't sound very nice, but during National Socialism, there was a form of, of pedagogics invented by a lady called Johanna Hara, and this was about alienating the child from its mother. And almost every family was affected by this. Children were just put aside. And then now, after my experience of 30 years of counseling, this is something that comes up over and over again, that people tell me there was such a coldness, there was no acceptance, I was isolated and, and lonely. That will be one of the topics we'll talk about. And we talked about this in, in Switzerland briefly. It's called black pedagogics. It was so common, not just throughout the time of National Socialism, but even after the war, it was just had a slight cosmetic change. And the book was called The German Mother and Her Child. And then after 1945, it wasn't called The German Mother anymore, but The Mother and Her Child. Even up to 1980, this was still in use in German uh, children's rooms. So this is something to do with the generations. So small surprise that the father was unapproachable and the mother just took care of hygienics and, and doing the washing, but she wasn't able to show her heart. That the mother was not able to embrace, but it was much more important to her that the laundry was done and that your teeth were cleaned. I mean, of course, it's important, right? So fathers and sons. And then there's a third point of restoration. That's the restoration between the church and Israel. So if you take a look at the word of Israel, the meaning of the word father in the New, New Testament, you can find the word 53 times, but only four times. It actually talks about the biological father in the New Testament, but 53 times. The term father actually describes the generations that went ahead. And it speaks about the people of Israel. So that's interesting. When we talk about fathers, that's the generation of the people of Israel. And Jesus is speaking about the children, so that's interesting. Because many times he addresses uh, his uh, disciples as children. Even Paul says that in Galatians, for instance, so you recognize that those who are born of the faith are the children of Abraham. So you see these two connections. The people of Israel is called the fathers, and the church is called the spiritual children. 
So the time of the spirit of Elijah is a time of restoration, as we said, a time of renewal, and also a time of working through the past. And apparently, this seems to be preparing something for the Lord. Apparently, this is something that today is of crucial importance. This is working through the generations, it's clearing away the stones, as we read this about John the Baptist, and it's a time of restoration, as that we recognize the Jewish heritage, it's a restoration between the church and the Jewish heritage. This is what's happening right now, and it's so important. For us, it might be something that we're quite used But if you go to other churches, not at all. So working through our personal stories, but also through Jewish history, the history of Jew hatred and anti-Semitism, working through the story and history of the Crusades. We might know this, but let me repeat this. Count Eberhard the Bearded returned from a crusade and started the university here in Tübingen. And because of founding, or on occasion of founding the university, he expelled Jews from the city for the next 400 years. That's not a story of blessing. The University of Tübingen wasn't the uh, trailblazer in training the Nazi elite and leaders of SS Einsatz. Uh, troops, that's what I'm sharing wherever I go. That wasn't for nothing. As early as 1933, the university was considered free of Jews, not because they expelled all the Jewish professors, but because there were no Jewish uh, professors. It was anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish right from the outset. So this is part of the story, and we are part of it as well. When we go to other countries and nations and share the story of anti-Semitic within the church we find that this hasn't been worked through anywhere and I'm saying this here in this place because we are seeing an explosion of Jew hatred and anti-Semitism we have seen that in the past five years maybe unlike anything we would have ever expected 90% of all Jews in Europe say we feel threatened and attacked. And if that's the case, we need to do something about this. If Jewish friends from Israel and here in the synagogues in Germany and in the Jewish communities say, we don't understand how Germany is treating Israel. We don't understand their decisions. We think this is terrible. We feel deserted. We are wondering where are the Christians. I tell you, these are statements we've heard in the past two weeks. Where are they? Where do they raise their voices? Where are our Christian friends who all said never again? That was the reason why I made the statement saying we can't wait for the next March of Life to happen, but we need to raise our voices now. That's part of restoration. That is very practical, very real. It's not nothing theological, mystical, whatever. It has to do with us. 
Today, I received a letter from Benjamin Berger. Do you know him? He's one of the founders of the Messianic movement in Israel. And allow me to read a few lines so you can really see how much this is moving our uh, Jewish friends. Sometimes we're so much caught up in our bubble, we might watch the news every now and then, but we don't know the results of what's happening. We have our own little spiritual battles here. And we're just thinking about ourselves, our own spiritual lives. But this is something that's always been there. But we need to take a look at what's happening around us. So what he says, dear Jobs, thank you so much for the video that you're addressing directly to Chancellor Merkel. It's so important to have a clear voice from Germany now. The Lord is very patient and he's waiting and he's given so much mercy and forgiveness to Germany since World War II. But we all sense that this old root of anti-Semitism is growing in Germany again that is still below the ground because it wasn't taken out completely. The situation is really dangerous for Germany and we pray that German might still hear the voice of God. The Lord is still waiting for national repentance from Germany. It is a shame that so few leaders and Christian leaders are making their voices heard and we're so grateful for you, your voices and testimonies and that it will be seen in, in heaven. And in Israel we also need that prophetic voice that is heard. We love and treasure you. And so we need to hear these voices. Restoration and reconciliation is nothing that is just laundered by God, but it costs a high price. And it is so important because God says that unless I see that in the church, I'll not be able to heal the nations. If that restoration is not there between fathers and sons, very real, in a practical lives between generations and our forefathers, but also between the church and Israel, I will have to strike the land with a curse. And so that's the call and the core for the March of Life movement. That's the core of the Veil of Silence seminars and conferences. That's why we do this. And I'm wondering, what's Elijah doing underneath his broom tree? Let me read this again. So he went into the desert for a day's journey, and he sat down under that broom tree, thorn bush. And I tell you, the thorns were like an inch long, so they were huge and painful. So why does he lie down there? And he just had enough. And he said, it is enough. Take my life. I am no better than my father's. So you remember my question in the beginning. What is this father's? You know, I'm no better than my father's. Who are they? And we know today Elijah represents anyone who wants to be sent in the spirit of Elijah. It's not just for one person, but anyone who wants to be sent in that spirit. And that's a spirit of authority, a spirit that doesn't compromise, a spirit that's so clear with sin and guilt. A spirit that is committed to the living God, a spirit that doesn't bow to the idols of this time. 
Aber Elia, was machst du denn im Dorn? But Elijah, what are you doing under that tree? So that's really strange. He had such a victory. That's not possible. 400 Baal's prophets overcome through the power of God. The fire of God fell even though there was a drought and there was water on, on the altar. And there he says, I've had enough. I am no better than my ancestors. And of course we know, Jezebel was fighting with all she had. She was going against Elijah. There was a spiritual battle and we see similar struggles today, whether you want to call it spirit of this age, spirit of darkness, spirit of Jezebel. But the etiquette remains the same. But Elijah was called. So Elijah, why do you say I'm no better than my fathers? What happened to you? That you are so frustrated, so discouraged, that you feel left behind. Almost you would have lost your calling, you would have messed up your life, everything that God gave to you. And it would have ended like that, dried up under this thorn bush of cares and worries. That's terrible. So somehow, that after victory, there is such a form of attack. And somehow, Elijah compared to his examples, his forebears, fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. These were his forefathers, his ancestors. He saw Abraham with his wonderful vision. He saw Isaac and Jacob. He saw him struggling with God, wrestling and overcoming. And yet he had his vision and failed. Maybe he also compared to the sins of his ancestors. Because those ancestors were also those who had left Egypt. And he saw them going through the Red Sea and ending up in the desert. And in the desert, they were grumbling and rebelling against God all the time. And maybe he thought of that as well. When he said, I am no better than my ancestors, than my forefathers. I don't know what he compared to, but he did compare himself. He compared with people, with ancestors, with people, with some things, instead of comparing to the power of God. He looked to his own powerlessness. He looked to what was not possible. He looked at the things around him instead of looking at the power of the living God. And see, that's the difference. There on Mount Carmel, the 400 prophets of Baal were dancing around him. And the only thing he did was he took the buckets of water and he poured the water over the altar that he had built. And then he worshipped God and he looked at the living God. He had no match with him. He had no fire, nothing to light the fire. But God sent the fire from heaven. So his eyes were focused on God in heaven. And the Bible says this is faith. But now, Elijah found himself in this place. And I would like to tell you, 
this place was actually precious to, in God's sight. For Elijah, it was very uncomfortable. But for God, it was precious. Maybe you have reached a point of brokenness. You don't know how to continue. You want to leave as quickly as possible, right? Because it's not nice to be there. This place, surrounded by cares and worries, thorns all around you, whenever you just turn around once, you get pricked by thorns and it's uncomfortable and then you sleep and wake up again and sleep and wake up you are in spiritual slumber and this is what happened to Elijah so that was a place of brokenness but I've got good news for you God had not finished yet with his sleeping prophet and no matter where you are God has not finished with you yet God is not finished with the sleeping prophet. He had other plans for him. He looked at him. And you know, so there he was, so many years, he had served God full of commitment. He had done everything and now he truly felt worthless and deserted by God. But the Lord had not deserted him. The Father in heaven came to minister to him. You see, Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and helps those who are of a broken spirit. And now this sleeping prophet was faced with a huge surprise because an angel came and woke him very gently and so he wakes up and you know the angels is not growling at him and say, come on, get up, what's wrong with you but he's full of love and actually appreciation and Elijah rubs his eyes and he sees a loaf of bread and some water and the angel says get up and eat and he eats and drinks and eats and, and drinks and falls asleep immediately and Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord is around those who fear him and helps them out of their trouble. So if you are maybe in your camp, place of brokenness, I can tell you there's the angel of the Lord who encamps around you. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Taste and see how good the Lord is. And then it happens. And then we get back to 1 Kings 19. He got up, ate and drank, and then he went 40 days and 40 nights in the power of this food. And so he gets up. And this is what the angel told him. Get up. Don't stay where you are. And then he reached a cave on Mount Horeb. And he stayed there overnight. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And because it's so glorious, I would like to read them. Come, step outside on this mountain and the Lord will pass by you. So I have to think of Moses here, right? Lord's passing by Moses. And there was a powerful storm that tore mountains apart. Just imagine what kind of wind that tears apart mountains. Rocks come tumbling down. But the Lord was not in the storm. And then there was an earthquake. 
shakings. And some experts say this is about a shaking that Matthew 27 says, the shakings of the last time. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard this, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So the cave, in the Hebrew sense of the word, means that I am actually uncovered, naked. I have no more self-protection. And coming into God's presence, you can only do that when you lay down your self-protection when you're without your own protection. And it's interesting, sometimes when I pray for people, they often stand like that. They cross their arms in front of their bellies. It's like a, like a protection. And often I tell them, come on, just open your hands so you can receive from God. And many times, just if they do this symbolic gesture, actually causes them to be able to receive. So the cave represents self-protection. And then in that cave, he saw the most amazing manifestations of the power of God. And we are living at a time, maybe generations before us have not seen anything like it. Changes, manifestations. But the Lord is taking you to the point, each one of us, me personally, just as well. When he says, lay down your self-protection. So you reach this cave and then you step out of the cave and there I will meet with you in all of my presence. And this mantle, this cloak he pulled around his face, actually represents the glory and presence of God. So when was the last time that you actually reached the glory and presence of God? The Lord wants to draw you out from your thorn bush or broom bush. Frustration and discouragement is not just a feeling. It can become a demonic power. A power that is with you and is like a very unlikable friend. When you wake up in the morning, he's there. And when you go to bed at night, he's there. Maybe you're even successful. You're successful in your job, maybe. Maybe you can do everything. And there is no sensible reason in your life. And yet the spirit is still there. And maybe this is a surprise to you, but I had to live with the Spirit for almost a whole year. And that's my own personal testimony. We returned from the March of the Nations, and it was an amazing, tremendous victory. Can you say amen? And we returned. And I was happy and rejoicing in this victory, but something was in me. A very deep sense of frustration. I didn't know where that was from, you know, it was deep inside of me. And in that year we saw victories, amazing conferences, power of God, anointing. And every time... 
I was confronted with this unlikable friend. I got up with him in the morning and at night I went to bed with this unlikable friend. I sent him away, of course, because I'm a man of God. I didn't allow him to dominate my life, but still he was there. I did what God asked me to do, of course. But you know, I can understand very well why this Elijah is there after the struggle and the victory he had. And that all of a sudden he ended under this thorn bush, the broom tree. And I prayed and I said, Lord, what is this? And then not long ago, maybe six days ago, I woke up one morning. And of course I have my times of prayer, usually very early in the morning. And I woke up that morning and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit started speaking to me. All of a sudden I saw the entire story of the past year and the Lord started speaking to me about Elijah and a calling for the restoration and the authority the Lord had given during that time to his people and his church. The Lord started speaking about the spirit of Elijah and about Elijah under the broom tree and he spoke to me and said, it is over. Get up. And I got up It was actually when we were down at Lake Constance. So sometimes it's worth it going down to Lake Constance. Anyway, I got up. And this unlikable, well, it's not a friend really. He wasn't there anymore. I got up. And all of a sudden, I saw in my spirit, not just that something was broken and I told myself, but it was present in my emotions, in my life, in what I did. So there was a shadow, a darkness that had gone away. And I am sharing this with you because sometimes we think that we actually have to live and put up with these inner struggles and this state of being. But that's not true. God intervenes and he speaks only one word and it is done. And that's why I wanted you to hear Karen's testimony, you don't have to live with that spirit of discouragement and frustration. Sometimes you don't even know where it's from. Sometimes we do because we compare ourselves to others or we want things, but you don't have to live with it. But the Lord is taking you to a different place and that place is the place of his presence. And the Lord passed by him. And some get confused and say, oh, well, I always have a quiet time with the Lord. Well, so quiet that you don't even hear his word, right? Or maybe you do? So this is not just about silence, but it is about God's glory. And the glory of God was so powerful that Elijah took his cloak and covered his face with it. That was the cloak of glory. So the Lord wants to give you that cloak, that mantle of glory once again, so you will be able to see, to see who he is and how he is. 
Oh, ich wünschte dir, dass du I really wish you all diesen that you would get out of that inward battle. Because in my spirit I can see there are so many here in inner battles and struggles. Battles that God doesn't like. He doesn't want you to fight against him and people. There's so many battles and struggles here. You're fighting against God and man. But you are to know, Jesus has already fought for you. He has given his life for you. You don't have to fight anymore. You can't just surrender and come to that place of brokenness and surrender where God says, it is my strength that's alive in the weak. I am the one who does it. We no longer have to work for what God is doing here for the March of Life Movement, for the seminars. But God is doing his work and we try not to get in his way. But let go of all your struggles and battles. You can do that. It's your decision. Let go of all your inner reservations. All the inner weapons that you have, the clenched fists. And exchange it for the mantle of glory. The mantle you can use to veil your face. Because God is a father who loves you. He knows what you need. He's the perfect provider. Trust in the Lord and not in your own understanding. Come on, let's do that exchange, right? And this is what he told me that morning. I was there and the Lord spoke to me. He said, trust in me. Trust. Trust. And then how do we continue? It says, and remember him, consider him in all your ways. And the Lord says, Jobs, very relaxed, you know, if you do that, I'll give you a guarantee. Ich werde dich I will lead you on the right path. I will guide you with my eyes. I'll not let you go astray. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever follows in my footsteps, who is my disciple, that's what it says, who follows me will not walk in darkness. He will not stray. You don't want to stray, so follow him, be his disciple. If you refuse to be his disciple and follow him, if you pull the handbrake, if you have your own conditions, you are caught in darkness. You are going astray. Even though your mind might say that it's actually light, but the word of God is very clear. So let's lay down our own instruments. And in closing, I would like to ask you, how is your time with the Lord? How are you? Do you actually arrive with him? Are you at home with him? Can you surrender to him? The Lord's calling you from this place of frustration and discouragement. The Lord's calling you as a generation in this time. It's a generation of the spirit of Elijah to bring restoration that produce restoration. And that will cost a price. And the Lord's calling you. It's a privilege to be part of that. You don't have to. But you can. You're invited. So let's all stand and then we'll pray together. Amen.